Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump in to today's conversation. My guest today is Sandine Chetwind. Sandine is a leadership and well-being coach based out of Melbourne, Australia. Sandine has a passion for supporting leaders to identify the combination of skills, behaviors, and habits that will make them be better and feel better at work to be able to have a career that is both rewarding and sustainable. Sandine partners with her clients to help them grow in their self-awareness and other awareness, improve their communication for more effective and impactful conversations, and develop trust-filled relationships to support self and others in mental health, collaboration, and networking. Sandine and I met through mutual work events, first of which were online and have since moved to in-person. From our first moments working together, there was synergy and connection, and that has grown delightfully as we get to know each other more and more. Today in our conversation, Sandine shares reflections on pieces of her life and journey that are personal and incredibly impactful, one of which is growing up with a father who had bipolar. She shares glimpses into what it has taken to absorb, process, reflect, and rewrite part of her story as an adult so that she can have the best possible relationships in her life now. There is so much wisdom in Sandine's sharing, and it is a beautiful gift to see how she has taken her life experiences and those challenges and has come away with a passion for supporting others, for helping others find well-being. Sandine, thank you so much for sharing these pieces of your journey and story. Thank you for demonstrating the courage that you help others find for themselves. I am truly honored to host this conversation today. Just one last note before we jump into our conversation. In Sandine's story, she shares a time when her dad attempted to take his life. If you feel this topic could be upsetting to you, I just want to offer that you take care of yourself first and foremost even if it means not listening to this episode. Sandine, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Thank you, Lisa. Good to be here. It feels like such a honor to have this conversation with you. And I was just commenting before we started recording how we first met on Zoom working together and since then I've had the privilege of working in person and I'm just really grateful for your willingness to come on the podcast. Me too. I'm grateful for having a new friend that's given me a place to be courageous about my story. So it's awesome. I appreciate you just highlighting the courage, Sandy, and because it does take courage. It's vulnerable. And I think a lot of people sometimes listen to whether it's this podcast or other podcasts and think people are so brave, I guess, and don't realize the internal courage that it really takes to, to open up and share. So yeah, I appreciate mm -hmm. highlighting that. Yeah. I think it gets easier as well. I've been telling the story I'm going to tell to you for about 10 years now. This is the first time having it recorded, which is its own degree of bravery um, and, you know, the first 20 or 30 times I told it, I cried all the way through it. And 
now not only is it getting easier to tell, it's a source of pride for me. It's something that I'm really grateful that I'm able to share. Well, as we begin, I want to ask the one standard question I ask all of my guests around this idea of making life less difficult. The name of the podcast, this work that I do, comes from the quote by Marianne Evans, what do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And I'm mm. very curious to hear, what does this mean to you? Um, I'm going to return serve with another powerful woman's quote, yeah. which is the wonderful Australian author, Amani Haydar. And in her book, The Mother Wound, she says that resilience isn't something that you are, it's something that you do. And so for me, that is the heart of making life less difficult. Understanding resilience and who we are as humans and what we need and then creating daily habits, rituals, safe places that help us to be more resilient, to cope with life. Would, I love that idea that there's something we can all do about making life less difficult. Yeah. I I love that as well. And I, I would love if you would share a little bit about how you understand resilience, because I think it's a term that is thrown around so much, especially after COVID and the pandemic. And I think I'm I'm just curious of how do you define resilience beyond that I mean that quote sort of does it and yet it, just to hear you expand um, your thoughts on that a little bit um yeah I think that there are you know broadly speaking four parts to a human being and therefore four parts to our health and these parts directly correlate to resilience practices so for me resilience is about our ability to bounce back to a functioning state when life's adversities come our way, which inevitably they will. And so if we can every day have some practices, some self-care, another phrase that we hear a lot about, that can nurture our mind and then secondly our bodies and then third, our social connections, our human need to exchange energy with other humans. And then lastly, our environmental or our spiritual or our purpose health, how aligned what we're doing is to who we are and how we want to be. So for me, resilience is about those four things. And when we do them, you know, people have better lives. They're more able to cope with the things that happen to them. Mm. And, you know, my experience with this comes from being the daughter of a bipolar parent. And, I, you know, I do want to today talk a little bit about bipolar. And, again, it's a word that's used loosely these days, but it's a, you know, a serious mental illness that affects many people. Mm. And I look back at my dad and the things that kept him alive weren't these things. It was psychiatric care. And we know so much more today about the behavioural things that we can do in addition to the required medications 
to support ourselves. Mm. So long answer to your question, but, you know, resilience is everything. It's the things that we do to make us ourselves stronger. Mm. There's so much richness in what you shared. The It's interesting that the two words that really capture me is the idea of bouncing back. And there's something in there for me that feels um, that kind of just, I don't know, makes me take a deep sigh because I, it, it gives me permission to not always be like resilience doesn't mean I'm always strong. I'm always at the top of my game. I never game. I never, you know, fall down or feel terrible. It's like, I can, I can fall down and then I bounce back. I can, I can kind of like feel terrible, but then I figure out how to bounce back. I do those things. And that's really, really helpful. Um, for me, mm, it helps to tell, yeah, one of those myths about mental health, doesn't it? That it's something that you can't recover from, but in fact, you can, and most people do, yeah, yeah, return to a more normal state of being, yeah. Mm. Sandine, I want to just, um, I just want to open the invitation for you to jump into your story. You mentioned your dad and, and bipolar and, um, learning about, um, that condition and and him as you have um throughout your adult life and i just want to open the door and say jump in where it makes sense and take us on a journey hmm. so my dad's name was paul kent clay sweet sweet man always saw the best in people often laughed and cried out loud in films or in songs with big crescendos, was emotional a lot of the time. And some of my earliest memories are watching his face and trying to figure out whether it was going to be a good day or a bad day, a good year or a bad year. So the first time I can recall noticing his mental illness, I would have been, I guess, seven or eight and just a response to the death of Elvis Presley that seemed bigger than what was warranted at the time. So this was 1977, far north Queensland in Australia, and a radio broadcast coming through telling us that the king was dead. And my dad was inconsolable. Wow. Shortly after that, we relocated towns. He was was a banker with the state government, so a public servant he was called in the day. And his job went from granting loans principally to dairy farmers to receiving properties on behalf of the bank in the stone fruit sector. And so his job went from one of giving to one of taking and he wasn't equipped to manage that. And certainly in 1980 in rural Australia, nobody said to him, are you okay, Paul? Are you managing with this stress? Can we help you? And he suffered what was termed at the time a nervous breakdown. And he was 39 and he never worked again. And it triggered a 30-year history of mania followed by extreme depression hence the nature of bipolar one. For some people, you know, the cycles can be weeks at a time, but for my dad they were months at a time. 
and the nature of mental illness, as many of your listeners will know and other guests you've had on have mentioned, is that it is inherently selfish. There's only enough space for one person's survival often. So as a child in that environment, a lot of your needs um, are missed. That's how you become more vulnerable, I guess. So I don't want to talk today about the things that were missed for me. Maybe I'll come back and talk about those at another time. Um, But the other thing that went along with mental illness in the 80s in Australia was a deep degree of shame. So one of the things that's prevented me sharing this story, something that I could, I think can help make other people's lives less difficult, is worry about my mother's response to it. Mm. You know, she was born in 1941 and her way of dealing with this was to create a very tight cocoon around my, my dad and myself and her. I'm an only child. Mm. So part of that was being sort of unnecessarily involved in adult matters. I was her buddy. I was the person helping her with all of dad's medical care, you know, from the age of 10. Just she was unable to manage that on her own. So I see that show up for me today in lots of ways, like a, a comfort talking about people's serious life events. I tend to go deep a bit. Um, I'm I'm overly comfortable in that space, Um, but also a desire to increasingly be truthful about my own version of this story and how I grew up and the things that happened to me. And I think a lot of that is due to mental illness and the part that it it plays when you have a parent that has a significant one. Yeah. There's, first of all, thank you very much for just being willing. And there's so many different directions that my mind is going and questions. And let me just toss this question out there, Sandine, and and take it in whichever direction makes sense for you. But when I think about you starting to tell your story as an adult, I resonate with the idea of you know, at things, things that happen in the family need to stay in the family. And I think this is something that is still prevalent. Sometimes it's even stronger in certain cultures and certain family subcultures. But I, I would love to hear a little bit about what sparked the, just the interest, the willingness, the courage to start sharing this story. Mm. I think my dad's passing certainly gave me some permission. It's ironic because I think he would have loved this. I think he actually would have been okay with this because I I was his confidant. I was the person when he was manic that spoke to him during the night, that went over and over things with him to help him seek comfort in whatever it was that was preoccupying his thoughts at the time. So we had a great relationship um, in that way. And then my work just started pointing me in this direction. So I had been working debriefing alignment and engagement surveys in in a boutique consulting firm for some time 
And the frustration of that job was working with executive teams that sort of weren't prepared to take responsibility for the decisions they'd made or who had low self-awareness. So I started thinking about coaching and emotional intelligence and gently moved my business from consulting into training. And then over time started in that self-awareness space thinking about people's resilience and how they could feel better at work. And it was almost like, I don't know why this happens, but I find that when people I've loved pass in my life, as I've heard others say, that just something about my dad started coursing through my veins. You know, I've gone back to something that I've known intuitively since I was a small child that, you know, it's important to recognise the emotions that other people are showing and to acknowledge them and to ask them if they need support in dealing with them. So my work over time has moved into that space and in the sessions that I run, I want people to feel safe and to feel like they can share some or all of who they are if that's what they choose to do. So I thought about the best way to do that and I think the best way was to speak my truth, was to have this as I present in a workshop as a polished, independent 50-year-old woman who also experienced some things that initially made her quite hard and over time has made her softer. And maybe that could happen for them too. So it was clunky, Lisa. There was lots of, you know, sobbing and crying and dry throats. And But I could see people's response to it. And when I deliver it, you know, at a workshop opening or as a keynote, it's more polished than, than the conversational version I just am having with you now. But it does the same thing. It reminds us that we've all had things that happen to us. And as humans, we've got the ability not to stop someone being bipolar or suicidal, but in that little moment to have them be heard. Mm-hmm. And making myself vulnerable and telling my truth And it's clear that it's my truth when I'm sharing it. Like, I don't think you can fake these things. There's no point telling stories that aren't entirely true. Just creates a foundation for others to do the same. Yeah. So that was what made me start doing it. And, you know, there's a selfish part to it as well. I, as I mentioned at the outset, I feel prouder and prouder of this man every time I say it, because he didn't have the benefit of therapy like I have, or even this conversation. You know, you and I have had many conversations around these sort of more personal spaces. How lucky are we that we're of a generation that's been able to do that? He had a really hard life and she did a good job with what he had. Yeah. Yes. That's the, I mean, that's one of the thoughts that's I'm I'm thinking as you're you're sharing and thinking about your dad in his 30s you know what was he going through and what what was missing lacking right the emotional support the the presence just the permission to talk about struggles and 
I, I find for myself, it's, it's easy to forget how recent the, the conversations have opened up to talk about these things. Jude, after his passing, going through his drawers, I found a meticulously kept ring binder and in it were handwritten letters from him where he's writing to the government saying that he doesn't think he'd be able to continue. You know, as recently as last week, he had electric shock therapy treatment and he really wasn't feeling well. So there's no one else even writing these letters on his behalf. You know, I sometimes wonder how I ended up as his support person. That's how, because not only was he dealing with that during these different episodes, but during that defining one, the one that ended his working career, he's also trying to navigate some income, some future security for my mum and I. Like imagine trying to do that while you're in the midst of a major depressive episode. Yeah, it's um, incredible. It is incredible. It is incredible. Yeah. And and then I, I think about your role and you mentioned being a support person for your mom and then also for your dad. That's, I mean, especially mm. as an only child, right? There was no other sibling to kind of spread that. Um those relationships out, like you were the focus point, which is really heavy for a for a child. Mm, it is. And, you know, I'll, I'll share a, a simple story and I guess it, it just speaks as well to the mental health system as it was in the 80s. Um, you know, it was a, a fairly brutal environment to visit your father in. There was no separation of mental illness. You were just deemed to require lockdown psychiatric care, as he did. And on one occasion, my mother and I visited him at a public hospital in Brisbane in Queensland in Australia. And on arriving, my dad wasn't there and us arriving to visit him had alerted them to the fact that he wasn't there. And they didn't find him that day. And the next day I went to school and another parent picked me up from school that afternoon. And at about midnight that night, um, my mother arrived and we went back to the hospital and they'd found my dad and he had attempted to take his own life. And our priest was there and my dad was covered in silver thermal blankets where they were still post-operation trying to keep him warm. And our priest held my mum's hand and we each held my dad's hand and he held my hand and he read my dad his final rites. Wow. My dad went on to have many more manic episodes. He survived that night. His heart, he was tough. <laughs> In, the, in his physical form. And he that, that, that situation I just described to you repeated itself in many forms many times over the coming decades. Yeah, so I think back to those times and I think it's some of the misses. You know, I, I didn't receive any ther therapy. I was 38 the first time I ever spoke to anyone. 
And it's interesting, you know, and I'm keen to ask your opinion as an American, you know, in on, in Australia, we get a sense that therapy is a very common thing in the States and that people are doing it all. Perhaps it's more affordable, but it's still quite taboo here. We have a mental health plan that's partially funded by the government, but each visit a person would be out of pocket, you know, $130 to $200 a time. Wow. So Psychology, therapy remains something that's for the privileged, absolutely. So at no point during my childhood was I offered any support for any of these things were happening and, and I think hence the very recent growth that I've been able to have in this space and acceptance of these of my inner child and the things that happened to me. Is that the case that that therapy is much more commonplace for you? I I think in fortunately certain areas, yes. And it is becoming more, more and more commonplace and accessible in the US. And it, it again, kind of when you get into the subcultures, there are still a lot of subcultures where mm -hmm. It is, it's okay for other people, but mm. I wouldn't, you know, do it or my family, we, we take care of things our, ourselves, you know, and it can be that um, sort of thing. And, you know, with, in my family, I'm one of five kids and I have definitely been the one to be in counseling and therapy more than any of my other siblings. Um, I think... Mm. I don't know if definitely one of my other siblings has worked with a, a counselor some, and I'm trying to think if, yeah, I, that I know of for sure. And, and so I would say yes. And also there's a lot of continued room for growth. The next generation, mm. my nieces and nephews who are now in their early to mid twenties, I'm really, it just, it makes me, um, I'm proud of them because they are seeing patterns in their own lives and saying, Hey, I want to do something about this. I want to get some help. And so they are already engaging in counseling and therapy. And I'm really proud of them because the sooner in life that we have support and we realize it's okay to talk about these things and it's okay that I have these struggles and I can do something. I can build and strengthen myself and my self-awareness. So um, I am very, very proud of the next generation and how they're stepping into the self-development in a different way. The thing is that if we don't tell the stories for ourselves it's someone else's story that we're telling I certainly was you know I was telling my mother's version of our story mm -hmm. because I'd never really stopped to think about what mine was I'd never really allowed that before I was too busy managing the situation would you so it's hugely related. would you say a little more about that because that's intriguing to me. And I think, yeah, I would just, I'm not sure what you want to share, but just to say a little bit more about that, because I think that 
really stands out. If I'm not telling my own story, I'm telling someone else's story. Yeah, well, the the story was that, you know, everything was idyllic and perfect until this terrible day when everyone was just let down by this thing that occurred. I'm more like my dad than I am like my mum. And this has also been a cause for concern and worry for me because the number one risk factor for bipolar one disorder is a blood relative with the condition, followed secondly by, you know, an episodic event of stress, like of major magnitude, like what happened to dad. Now, he and I never discussed this, but when I look back on my grandmother, who died when I was quite young, um, she spent a lot of time in her bedroom and she always seemed to be unwell and no one really can tell me what was wrong with her. And she died quite young and she never worked that I noticed. Um, it just strikes me that a lot of her behaviours are very similar to my dad's, a, a shutting down and unable to find joy, dark rooms, pulled curtains, not eating, that kind of thing. Um, so, yes. Remind me of your question, Lisa. You just took me on an interesting memory then of thinking how generational these things are. Yeah, it's so, so interesting. So we we started with that idea of telling your own story, because if not, you're telling someone else's story. And, and yeah. So I am his blood relative. My mother is not. I, some things that happened to me as a result of, I like to say their eye being not on the prize, their attention being elsewhere, keeping my dad alive for a lot of it. Things were missed about me, about my safety and things that I needed. And over time, my mother has been unwilling to discuss those things with me. And so I didn't tell my story. I Everything was just about Dad and how his mental health impacted us. But I had a different experience of the impacts than she did, really different. And it's been hugely helpful for me to be able to acknowledge what happened to me as a younger person and how that plays out for me in my intimate relationship with my husband in marriage, you know, is really what the combination of my dad passing and being in a marriage forced me to have to deal with. I, you know, was attaching to people in an unhealthy way. Today is our 14th wedding anniversary mm. and is marriage almost the hardest thing that I've ever done? Absolutely. Because in me, when you have a mother that was distracted and didn't pay attention to your needs, not because she was bad or neglectful, I was well looked after, just my emotions weren't, and you have a father that repeatedly tries to take their own life, it results in an anxious attachment, a, a need to feel loved and to look for it in places where you're probably not going to get it. Um, 
Now, if I hadn't have realised that, I probably wouldn't be celebrating my 14th wedding anniversary today. And family is important to me. You know, if I have my way, I want to die old with this man. But has it been difficult? He's an identical twin who grew up in a very Zimbabwean, grew up in a very different way to me, much more securely, I would argue. Mm. So telling my story and being prepared to have a look at my experience, my unique experience of having a bipolar parent has enabled me to be nicer to myself. I don't always have to be in charge and knowing where dad is and sorting situations out. I can ask for help. I can have down days. I can go to therapy. So that part's really cool. That's the best part about this being my story now. Mm. I can talk to you. It's not my mum's story anymore. It's mine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations on 14 years. Thank you. And there's so much in what you're sharing, Sandy. And I, I have so many different questions that I want to ask. I think there's so much that's relevant. And one of the things that you shared of being able to tell your own story and recognize your own experience as, as a child, obviously going into teenage years, adult years and recognizing, you know, your mom has her own story and, and figuring out how to separate that out it seems to me like that is incredibly challenging and difficult. Mm, the most difficult, I think, but so relevant to my the way that I love my husband. You know, at, at its worst with my mother sort of scratching around looking for acknowledgement of my feelings and my response and quite different people me being very emotional and quite open to talking about emotions and my mum literally seeing that kind of thing is quite shameful so born in 1941 refers to herself as a veteran baby you know war baby uh, one of seven kids across a you know her mum was pregnant for 20 years and delivering those across those seven babies and a harshness of life that's in her mind very different to what I had and it was in terms of electricity and heating and the depression and variety of food and access to the rest of the world and education you know she got ill and was forced to not go to school any later than uh, about 13 mm. um but her, the story that she told always and still to this day is the loudest story that is told mm. her resilience what she went through having a bipolar partner the things that she missed out on and because of their mutual dependence on me my dad as a place to talk and my mum as someone to help her solve challenges. 
I just took on this role, you know, very early on and have had a lot of trouble breaking it, you know, and to other people trying to separate their story, it's the most gradual thing I have ever been a part of. If we had have been talking five years ago, I would have thought that I had have gotten to the bottom of this and I was only just starting to scratch the surface. Hmm. Becoming a parent helped again because because I know what it feels like to not have my experience heard until much later in life, I'm very conscious of not making that happen to my boys, not expecting them to grow up too quickly because I think of things that I did when I was 12 and why aren't they doing that? Well, they shouldn't be doing those things. (laughs) So having my own kids has made it really obvious that my story isn't theirs and that helped me as well to let go of some of this story that was my mum's. Would I sit in front of her now and repeat the things I'm saying to you to her? No. Is the reason why I wouldn't do that entirely healthy? Probably not. There's, I still am governed by I would, wouldn't want to hurt her, even if it is the truth. It's, and I think as well, you, you, you learn over time. I've known for a very, very long time since I was a little girl, if, I've only become conscious of it in recent years. But I've known for a very long time that my mother isn't that interested in hearing my woes. Mm. Probably knew that when I was little as well. Mm. It's There's so much complexity to it. There is. There is. There is. But I think that parents that you've got secure attachment to, you wouldn't be afraid to talk about or worried about talking about your life because it would already have been cordoned off as yours. Mm-hmm. The secure attachment. So, yeah, go on. The The secure attachment versus the anxious attachment. Would you... Would you be willing to say a little bit more, compare and contrast with some, how does this show up? Because I'm having some ideas that float through my mind and I would just love to hear you say a little bit more about what what actually shows up, right? In an anxious attachment, in, in a relationship, what actually might show up practically in a secure attachment Mm. Um, I'm far from an expert on this and I'm very new um, to this discovery. So I'll talk really broadly, but it's incredibly interesting. So studies done of infants and mothers in a room and a third party comes into the room who is not known to the baby And then shortly after the third party arrives, the mother leaves. And attachment theory is based on what happens to the baby or toddler when the mother returns. Mm -hmm. And broadly speaking, there's three types of reactions in babies. The first is secure, to look towards the mother and get either physical or verbal, some sort of reassurance that, yes, we're all okay here and that's fine what just happened and then the baby goes on to play again. 
the second type is avoidant. So the mother comes back into the room and the baby doesn't require the, the mother for emotional regulation, doesn't acknowledge the mother and continues to play. No difference between the stranger and the mother. And then on the third, the anxious attached baby becomes increasingly upset upon the mother's return because the mother being there doesn't offer the comfort that it would in a secure baby. Hmm. Does It's not trusted. It's mistimed. It's not seen. So for me as an adult, I had had a tendency to attract people that denied me that demonstrative um, love. So that's for a start. I repeat, I'm, I'm more comfortable in an environment where someone's not really being openly loving to me. That's the first challenge. And then the second thing is once I find myself in that relationship where the person's not responding to my emotional needs, I start scratching for it, looking for it, asking for it. And, of course, if they aren't, if they're avoidant, <laughs> um, they'll, that will be not great for them. Mm-hmm. I'll be increasingly looking for something that they can't give me. And it just goes around and around, and I was definitely repeating that cycle. Wow. So that's, you know, that's groundbreaking to be able to access that truth about myself and to have alternative means. And, you know, going back to where we started talking about resilience and it being something that you do, not something that you are, morning routines are the, you know, the sort of cornerstone of my resilience and what I've been able to do as a result of sharing these stories. You know, I only ever knew how to put other people first before and particularly once I became a mother, that became very problematic, whereas now that's my time. You know, I'm I, as best I can, I have my space and I, I've tried to make it go over the last few years from being an idea to being a routine, to being a habit, and now starting to become a ritual, something that's deeply comforting to me. You know, on my darkest day, I'll say to myself, it's okay, my darling girl. Mm. And just being able to access that self-compassion for who I was and am in my morning routine is the best. Such a simple thing, a morning routine, but it's I get I get it now. I get why people say that create that space for yourself first. That's resilience. That's doing the those things that matter to me. Yeah. It's really, really powerful too, Sandy. And it takes me back to the quote, what do we live for if not to make life less difficult for each other? And my own journey with that of really focusing on the others first and the ease and joy that I do get from engaging with others and hopefully making their lives less difficult. And then coming back to realizing I make my own life more difficult a lot and self-compassion, learning about self-compassion, developing a practice of self-compassion has helped me make choices to make my life less difficult. And then what I have 
learned the beauty of it is that I actually have more capacity to be there for others. And so it's not like, I think initially, and this is goes back to how I was brought up. It's like, no, no, no. It's selfish to think about myself and my journey and think about making my life less difficult. I shouldn't think about myself at all. I should only think about others. And it's been a beautiful discovery of, oh my goodness, when I am able to hold myself with compassion and give myself permission to make choices that make my life less difficult, I truly do have more space and capacity to be there for others and make life less difficult for others. I totally agree. I can recall my psychologist saying to me more than once, you know, let this this protector that's kept you so well stepped down. We don't need her now. Talk to your little girl. And I was like, what is this woman talking about? <laughs> but I, I couldn't get it. I genuinely couldn't get it. Yeah. But that finding a phrase where you can refer to yourself with the joy, the love, compassion that you would give to, I would give to one of my sons, someone I love unconditionally, and how that leads to better serving other human beings is remarkable, isn't it? It's just incredible how that kindness to myself, that love for that little girl, it makes me a better friend, definitely a better parent. When my husband listens to this, he'll be surprised that I've spoken about us and I think he would say it's making me a better wife and it definitely makes me a better coach and teacher. Sandine, you've mentioned a couple times in some different contexts, right, the little girl that's still inside of you and I'm wondering what was your journey of recognizing that 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 little girl inside of you um i know there's you know these ideas around parenting the inner child and things like that and again i think there's phrases that we toss around and maybe aren't exactly sure i mean for many of us some some know exactly what it means but for many of us kind of like well what is that what does that actually mean and anyway i'm i'm just curious if you're learning and discovery and journey of recognizing and holding that little, the 10 year old version of yourself, the 12 year old version of yourself with kindness and compassion? Um, some realization through telling this story and holding space for myself in therapy and in meditation and in, you know, the 10 kilometers I try to walk every day because she was really cool. Gee, she was tough and fun and outgoing and moved around to lots of different schools and kept her parents safe and deeply invested herself in learning and knowledge and because of that I'm getting to do this now so I just I've never seen her enough before to even really like her but I look back on it now and I don't know, I just really like who I was as a little person. I, I wasn't, I'm not just someone who has stopped their career on numerous occasions to look after her parents. What a good daughter you are. I'm something other than a daughter. 
I'm just me. And I really goal-orientated person who wants to experience the world and stay fit enough to play one-on-one basketball with my kids. (laughs) That's who I am. (laughs) It's got nothing to do with my relationship to my parents. It's really beautiful to hear you describe your younger self in that way. And I I resonate with the a couple uh, couple of years ago now, two and a half years ago, and some work I did with an EMDR therapist and realizing the strength and resilience I had as a kid. And rather than looking back and, you know, with negative thoughts about myself being like, wow, that was really amazing what you did as a 10 year old. Good for you. You had courage. And it's amazing that shift and yeah, how, you know, I noticed for myself, I could be so critical of previous versions of myself, especially as a child and teenager and things. And then to be like, wait a minute, there's another story to be told here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a good one. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful for having the bravery the very first time to realise that sharing my story would enable somebody else to share theirs. Because if I hadn't have realised that, none of this would have happened and I wouldn't be as healed as I've been able to become. And to be as clear about my work purpose. You know, I want people to have the confidence to be aware of themselves and aware of those around them enough that when they see that someone needs support to ask them whether they're okay. Mm -hmm. Really simple mission, really achievable that I can help lots and lots and lots of people to get the confidence to do that. Yeah. Tandy and I would love to hear you say a little bit more about what you do. And the thought that's coming up for me is the beauty of how life works of what you do in wellness and particularly in corporate settings and helping people understand how they can take care of themselves and find psychological safety and um, well-being in the midst of some really stressful environments. It just, it takes me back to what your dad did not have and the beauty of how the universe works sometimes of, you know, like what you're doing now, I just can't help but think your dad would be so proud of you. And it's honoring to him in in what you do now. And I'd love to hear a little bit, just to have you share a little bit more about what it is exactly that you do, because I think it is so incredibly important and needed in the world. Yeah, I was talking uh, to a student about this last week and she said to me, you know, why don't you have a business partner? Because, you know, obviously when you work on your own, that's not very scalable. Mm. And and I said, I think because my purpose and, as you said, the honouring of my dad is so strong that I'm not interested, not that I'm not interested in finding a partner. I am. That would be a wonderful thing to happen to my business. But the the reason for doing it would have to be so pure, someone who really gets it from a lived experience. And 
In Australia, we've recently had some legislation changes and for the first time in our working history, psychological risk will um, take a place in our occupational health and safety legislation. So as um, an organisation and as a country, we're realising the importance of creating spaces where people can speak up, they can talk about their experience without fear of being punished or at having negative career implications. Um, so increasingly what I want to do is to help people be more intentional about their careers. No one cares about my career more than me or you more than yours. And if we don't take accountability and ownership for the role career has in our lives, who will? So I really want to have a part in empowering people to step back and think about what they want from this experience of work and, and what things, what measures, what habits, rituals, routines they have to establish, ideally much earlier in their career than I did, um, to set themselves up for success. And you know a lot of the value from the work that you and I have got to do together, the way that we've met professionally is in doing that, helping young leaders realise that this is all in your hands, as hard as it may be. It's, in, it's incredibly hard. And the question that comes up for me that I would love to hear your thoughts on is, I, I talk to people, you you talk to people regularly who look at the organization that they work for and they they like their jobs, they want to be in those jobs, and yet it's it's an organization and the organization ends up looking out for itself. And it might have um, you know, corporate principles and values that say, yes, we value our employees and we want our employees to be healthy and happy and fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And yet at the end of the day, the the organization, the corporation looks out for it itself. And it is, I guess the question is how much, right? Like how much is my responsibility? How much is the organization's responsibility? Ideally, it's a it's a partnership and it's a collaboration, but in real life, I find that it doesn't always work mm. right as this collaboration. Mm. Um, so I don't have a very well-structured question, but I'll just stop talking and see where you take it. Yeah, and I think it's difficult because of that, because it is a dual role. The organisation's got a responsibility to protect the people that work within it, and there's legislation to varying degrees around the world that helps with that protection. But then individually we have to prioritise the things that are right for our minds, our bodies, our social connections, our spiritual or environmental health. And that like mental health is a deeply unique thing. Each individual has to do the work. And I think from my experience, a lot of the challenge comes from, as it often does with adult behaviour change, trying to make the change too big, too great. Mm. You know, we have to start small with, with daily behaviour change. You know, something like meditation. How often do you hear people say, oh, I can't meditate, I just keep thinking about other stuff? It's like, yes, and you will until the end of time. But maybe just stop and take a breath in for three and breathe out for four and that would be a place to start. So it's about 
knowing that you're responsible for prioritising it and knowing that it's little changes that get the best outcomes. Mm. What do you think? What's worked for you in knowing that it's your job? It is. I mean, I think... I think the first step is being willing to accept that personal responsibility because it's so much easier to point the finger outward and say, well, if the organization did this, or if my boss did this, then it would be easier to do this. And, and, and is that true? Yeah, it would be easier. And yet kind of coming back to this idea of making life less difficult. There's some things in life that are difficult, right? And and depending on the organization I work in, there's super strong cultures. And so taking personal responsibility for myself is not something that's easy, will never necessarily be easy, but it's a difficult thing that's worth doing. And what what how can I make it a little less difficult, right? I mean, I think some of it's just having these conversations like this that remind me, oh, okay, well, take responsibility. First and foremost, just take responsibility for what I can, first of all, what I can control, which is usually just myself. And then second of all, what can I influence, right? Like I do have Mm -hmm. some influence and then there's certain things that I have no control or no influence over. And so kind of categorizing those things and being willing to start with just acknowledging my own personal responsibility is mm. the place that I come to of just like, this is where I have to begin. Mm. And whenever I'm working with coaches in this space, it's always about the combination of values and then non-negotiables. Mm. And I, you know, I'll really push someone who who doesn't have any non-negotiables because you have to have things that you are and aren't prepared to tolerate in your working life. Mm -hmm. And knowing what those things are is really freeing. Yeah. How much, Sandy, and this is a question that I, I sometimes wonder about, and it's come up in my mind as we have talked, and I'm just curious, you know, it seems like some, some, conversations that are happening in the world say there's much more mental illness now in 2023 than there was years ago. And then the question that comes up for me is, well, is, is there actually more or is it that we talk about it? And so we're hearing about it more because I think about the story of your dad and he didn't have the space to talk about his struggles and his mental illness until it got to the point where he had to be hospitalized. Right. And then I think, you know, the brief story you told about your grandmother and again, nobody talked about it and she just spent a lot of time in her room and this and that, no, she didn't feel well. And anyway, like I hear stories about like, about this and you think back generations and again, that there wasn't the space to talk about it. Is it that there really is more? Is it that we're really open? Is it some sort of combination? What are your thoughts on this? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm torn of some of the things that you've just mentioned. In Australia, certainly the stats are that pre-pandemic, one in every six Australians was experiencing a mental illness. And today our government authorities and relevant charities report that as one in four. So there's certainly more prevalence of it. 
in terms of reported stats. But my middle son, my stepson, has autism, and I often think the same thing about that. You know, we know so many people with autism now, and we're able, again, to, to see other people in the family line where perhaps it showed up. And has that become more prevalent or is it just that we know what it is now? It's really, really hard to know. Certainly looking at teenagers, my children and their friends, and then looking at a broad range of participants that I've got to work with in rural and capital cities across Australia in the last six months, I think it's social health. Um, where I can see, you know, the biggest impact. A real lack of connection, of thinking that online friendships are offering the same things as actual conversations or sharing a hobby or going on a walk or seeing a film together uh, that shared experience, real experience creates. So for me, there's definitely a spike in social health um, consequences in Australia. That, yeah, and I appreciate you using the term social health because it does kind of separate out the individual and the individual journey in combination with the the more collective journey. And it's interesting because, I mean, I being from the U.S., individuality is of high priority, and you know our cultural spectrum tends to bear more on the individual than the community and collectivist side of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's pros and cons to both <laughs> the sides of that coin. And, and, you know, it's um, that those social connections are really, it, it's part of my passion behind doing this podcast and, and inviting people to share pieces of their journey and, and story because there's other people who will connect and realize, oh, I'm not the only one. Someone else has gone through something similar and the value and the, the transformation that can happen with that connection is really, really powerful and, and important, I believe. I think we, we know that to be mentally healthy and to be able to sustain it, you have to contribute to a community to something more than yourself. You know, it's often why we see people who've experienced great traumas or losses in life. They turn to community and charity for connection because it's healthy. It, it feels good. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, even beyond the feeling good, I mean, the thing that comes to my mind, and I'm not sure I can even articulate it well, but it allows, when I think about my own journey, when I am well connected with the people I love and care about, and I know they love and care about me, I'm able to be present, to show up as a, as a different version of myself. And I would, I would categorize it as a better version of myself because I know the less uh, connected version of myself. <laughs> I think, oh, that's not... That's not the greatest version of of Lisa. So, you know, there's a there's a depth there of the impact that those connections make for me. That that um, yeah, just I'm like, oh, I like that version of myself. And you know, maybe that's 
part of the question for for people to ask like what's what's important what's necessary kind of going back to those core values that you mentioned um in order for me to show up as the the better versions of myself and that's why I like these four pillars of well-being you know just something practical perhaps as we come to the end of our chat but I always like to do a little audit on myself you know so I'll ask myself once a week more regularly if the feeling requires it what have I done recently for my mind what have what have I read what music have I listened to when was the last time that I meditated what have I done for my body have I been eating nutritionlessly have I been eating moderately have I been moving the way that I know my body likes to move Mm. where are my social connections my core people when was the last time I spoke with them do I know what's happening in their life when can I next reach out to them and make time for that and then lastly in terms of my space you know is the work that I'm doing has it been connected to my purpose am I standing and sitting and moving around regularly to manage my mood and just running through those four things, you know, fairly consistently just helps to then realign me on that resilient path. Just remind me that, you know, it would be better for me to do the 10 minutes of meditation and go for a walk and do a little bit on my business than it might be to do a 20K hike. I've got to balance my energy across all these different important parts of human health. Um so asking myself those questions, I find really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, that structuring as well. Sandine, I'm so grateful for this conversation and for your willingness to share these pieces of your journey. And I know there's so much more. I would love to have you back and to continue the conversation and to learn more about your, your journey and to just hear more of your wisdom in this area of well-being as well. Thank you for letting me share some of it, Lisa. I'm so excited that I get to say another sharing while regulating and managing my emotions. I felt really secure and confident when I was talking to you. I had my tissues nearby, but yet again, more evidence of the confidence and growth that comes from sharing these things. So thank you so much for persisting with the invitation. And equally to all of the other guests, I went on a rapid upskilling of um, Make Life Less Difficult and listened to so many of your wonderful guests over the last few months. And it's there talking to you that gave me the confidence to do it, topped off by your great conversation with Russ and you being on the other side of the chair. Mm. So thank you to all of them as well. I really like being a part of your community. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah. I feel a deep sense of gratitude and yeah, just appreciate the chance to connect. And I know that your story will touch hearts and resonate across the miles. And here's where the, you know, the virtual world benefits us as we can hear stories. And you're in Australia and I'm in Sri Lanka and there will be people listening from all different parts of the globe. And it's, yeah, it's a really special journey and I feel a deep sense of gratitude for this time with you. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. 
Thank you for listening to today's conversation and episode of the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Editing is done by Joseph Burdock. Artwork is by Emma Burdock. I'd be honored if you took a moment to share this with a friend and or leave us a review. Together, I truly believe we can make life less difficult.